fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Exactly. This is the most we important part of being live is the coffee in the morning. Amen to that. Aloha, this is Jim the Traveler with um, uh, Adrian Hugh. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and as the title said, um, Andre Loy. And take it away, Adrian. Aloha and welcome. <laughs> uh, this is our breakfast talk story with Andre Loy, and this is a continuation of last night's conversation. So last night, Andre gave us a fantastic presentation uh, about um, the myths and truths of pesticides. He broke down for us just a few of um, the arguments that are used to sell pesticides, and then you know what he sees on the ground and what's in the literature about what they do to our health and particularly to our children's health because we know that there's uh, an increasing incidence of uh, several diseases of, I mean you name it everything from you know, seizures and autism to cancer and death. Uh, so with that we're going to really just uh, have a little bit more of a discussion with Audrey today and I'm going to lead him with a few questions and then I'll open it up to everybody else who's in the room. So, Andre, tell us a little bit, um, give us a little bit of your backstory. Like, how did you get into this, and why are you so passionate about it? Okay, in terms of how I got into farming or organic farming, I, I, I come from a farming family. Uh, I, I was a, I've been a chronic asthmatic since I've been a baby, and so I would always get very sick um, if we went anywhere near the um, sheds with the chemicals or the, where the wheat was stored, and I, I would end up seriously ill. So I was always going to be an organic farmer because I could not use the chemicals. But I became a tropical organic farmer because when I was 17, I visited one of the first pioneering organic farms in Australia and this is in an area much like here in the Big Island. It's a, a wet tropical rainforest area. It's, it's a bit over a thousand feet and we went through a driveway through the rainforest into this small farm. It's just a few acres but when I walked on it I could see all, all different types of fruit trees I've never seen before. Lots of different flowering plants, vegetables, and you know, to it, it just looked like the Garden of Eden because I could. The first time I saw, saw things like jackfruits and custard apples and papayas and bananas and and then all the different tropical flowers, all the different um, vegetables. You know, both the, the common ones that we eat, but all the you know the, the tropical vegetables. Never seen anything like it. And I thought to myself, this is what I want to do. So that's 
what way I got into it, and that's why, you know, I, my fun is tropical. I've been doing that since 1971. And so then, you know, did you start to notice any changes in your health when, you know, when you, you got into that environment? It was a huge change. I, as a child, I used to spend, uh, on average, three days a week in bed. Well, I was that ill, and uh, when I moved up to where I am now, um, my health changed dramatically. That didn't mean it was a cure, and there's still times when I ended up in hospital with yeah. bronchopneumonia and these sorts of issues, but it was completely manageable. It's, 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 and the amount of time I was ill was reduced considerably, you know, to say, down to 2% compared to what it was when I was younger. So for me, um, like you say, there's no going back. It was, it was a positive lifestyle change. And it always meant that I'd have to grow these crops without using chemicals. And first I was told it was impossible. Um, I, well, my wife and I, we raised a family. We raised our two boys on a, on a farm. And I always tell my boys to you know, go for your dreams and don't let people tell you it's impossible because they grew up on the impossible farm. I was first told, because I was the person who introduced things like Rambutans doing mangosteens to Australia. Um, in fact, talking about that friend of mine, Tololok, my wife and I, we were on one of our collecting trips in Asia, bringing these um, fruits back. We also went to Latin America and collected um, fruits. We were told we couldn't, we couldn't get them back into Australia because of quarantine. I, I went and saw the quarantine people found it wasn't impossible, it was difficult, but difficult for good reason because they wanted to stop us bringing in pesting diseases. So just difficult just means you have to plan better and work it out, so that's what we did. Once I'd done that and shown people how to do it, it actually started a whole wave of people bringing in these, these new crops into Australia. Then, then I was told um, you could never grow these things organically because I'd get fruit flies and all these other pests. Well, I did, and um, I used to at, at, at one point export to most cities in Australia and to Japan, into China, Hong Kong, Vancouver, um, London, Paris. So. Um, Know, yes, I could do it and I could get the quantities and quality. Because the other thing I, I was told, uh, also because of where I was, I was a thousand miles away from the nearest state capital city, that I was too far away from the markets. <laughs> and um, the fact is, I, I wasn't I could find the markets. So then, what, when? When did you start becoming more of an activist okay. and in, you know, involved with iPhone, for example? Well, that, that actually happened, actually talking about invasive species. Uh, we, we had a new species of fruit fly came into Australia from Asia. And at that point, you know, my, my farm was, it's a struggle having a farm, but I got it to the point where I had eight, eight full-time workers and you know, finally doing well and making a profit. And then um, 
suddenly we were quarantined and the only way I could get my fruit out was if I dipped it in two organophosphate chemicals, one, one, either dimethoate or fenthine. And that's a really difficult thing because, you know, I was an organic farmer for on, I could say, um, well, one because of my health, but the other one because of principles. But then I thought, well, um, do I go bankrupt over my principles? So I, I want to look at the science and understand that, you know, really, if these things are as safe as what I'm told, then maybe, you know, I'll, I'll have to do this type so I can sell fruit. So I looked at the science, and that's actually what got me started on, on writing about it, because when I started looking at independent peer-reviewed papers, I was absolutely horrified. It was far worse than I ever imagined, and I always remember that after reading that, you know, I had to go um, down to where, where we're doing the packing, and I had to sack eight people. And you know, because, and when you're living in a country town, those eight people, they don't, just your employees, they're your neighbours, they're your friends, but I, I could not sell fruit. I had no income now, and I had to um, make a, a really, you know, strong decision, and, and that set me back for years, but then I decided to fight it, and with the science, and in the end, we actually changed the way quarantine works and, and the point where no longer were they doing things like cover spraying, dipping things in toxic chemicals. We, we, we got the science done so we could look at other ways that we could uh, control the pests, particularly things like baiting, uh, ways where we didn't damage the environment. We looked at other ways of how we could treat the produce or make sure that it wasn't um, infected. In, in most cases, what we called a, a hard green protocol, where we actually had a, a picking protocol for most of it, that um, if at a stage where it would not get stung by the pest, but it was at a quality that, 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 that would be ripen up and be good to eat at the markets. So for a lot of fruits, bananas um, and other ones, we could do that. Then some fruits, what we did instead is just have a, uh, a bait spray program where we actually used a, a lure with a um, insecticide that was allowed under organic, um, under organic um, certification. We didn't spray that on the fruit, we put it on the trunk of the tree. Or we had enclosed baits, that was another one. Um, and so as a result of that, we actually changed the way we deal with um, these protocols. In fact, I, I've still got that seat um, on the committee that deals now with, with all the um, exotic um, pests that come in. Because no, Australia's like a way, we're an island, we're trying to keep things out, but the nature of commercial trade is um, that they come in. Uh, and so, but now we've got protocols of dealing with it so that organic farmers don't have to go out of business. And also, can I say, I actually lost quite a few of my friends after, for the, to, um, to cancer.
because the, they were dipping the stuff literally in their hands and, and, and no masks, anything like that. And I, I was the one that actually got those protocols in, but the damage was done. And uh, quite a few people after that developed uh, cancers and the type of cancers that you see in the literature with those chemicals. Right, and, and last night you talked about um, some of the chemicals that are actually used in chemical warfare and transferred to plants and somehow that's now perfectly safe yeah. <laughs> for consumption. Well, those, or, or, those two particular chemicals used against fruit fly uh, of that same group, the organophosphate, and they're still used. Um, I think actually one of them, the United States, you get banned fenthine. Um, my country hasn't banned it yet. We, in Australia, we use 80 pesticides that are banned in the rest of the world. We're actually the second worst country in the world for pesticide use. India is the worst. Indonesia, for instance, is basically Guatemala. Uh, are better than us to put things in perspective. Well, um, America has banned some of them, but then we send them overseas. Right. You know, and then we import those foods back yeah, <laughs> with yeah, the stuff on yeah. it. We must think that the third world is much stronger than us by exporting them yeah. to yeah. this country. But Thailand is one of the worst. Mm. Oh, yeah. One of the worst. And yet they claim they don't allow GMO. We were just in a vineyard. They had all BT grapes. They talk about it in the literature, but just because it doesn't say GMO, they're not banning it. Yeah, same with papayas. Yeah, but but all their papayas now a GM papaya. Well, they have to in the world. No, no, Hawaii. Oh, right. But yeah. Thailand, you know, claims that they have no GMOs in the country. I know. We were just there. But like I said, they have BT grapes. So they don't use pesticides, though. So it's very, I mean, it's very lucrative for them to say. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've yet to see one BT crop where they, they don't use pesticides because uh, the nature of BT, you might control one pest, but there's other ones, another group of them that were previously controlled by the spray regime now, which um, comes out stronger. So it's, uh, and then the other thing we're finding <coughs> everywhere in the world now is that. Um, <coughs> The pests like bollworm are becoming resistant to BT. So what they're doing is making things like triple stack BTs where they're putting new types of BT uh, into it. But essentially, um, it'll be a short-lived technology. It's the same with Roundup Ready now. Um, Roundup Ready is basically failing in the Midwest because of of um, weeds becoming resistant to it is um, oh, what's, um, what's the name? Um, the giant pigweed. Oh, there's, there's a few of them now. The weeds that they've got, so the names will come to me, but they actually grow taller than the, than the, the corn and pull it down. Oh, jeez. Um, so, as a result, farmers are having to use other, other pesticides, of course. Monsanto won't exist today, Bayer and uh, DuPont and others are trying to bring in um, new ones that use dicamba and that is causing huge problems with drift and another one with 2,4-D and these particular herbicides uh, drift for miles and now you have neighbour suing neighbour over damage with, with these new ones. So 
it's uh, it, 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 it's a, a very interesting field to see what's happening now in in the Midwest with the BT and the um, herbicide resistant traits. On the other hand, you know what the, the companies are actually pushing it in Latin America, but now Latin America is starting to get those problems, and so now the big place to that where they're pushing them out now is Africa, because because there you know there's no weed resistant yet or, or pest resistance to it. Okay. In India, the, the two main ones that they've put out um, that are use BT varieties, is it, uh, a, a cotton and uh, the uh, eggplant they call brinjal and massive problems with those and, and crop failure and causing thousands of farmers to commit suicide because they're going to debt to buy the seeds and the chemicals they need and then they don't have the debt and so they actually mostly just swallow the poison and uh, and leave whole families destitute. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to touch on the, the, the Indian deaths because there are, let's say, rumors <laughs> that that's not true. And I've, I've talked to some Indian farmers, that they, farmers and they tell me they see this in the papers every day. Okay, I, I can tell you, I have been to the villages. I have met the women and children. It's devastating communities. We're not talking about an odd suicide here or there. We're talking about an epidemic of thousands, and uh, it, you know, every month, hundreds of thousands over the years. Mm -hmm. yeah. I know that they try to downplay it, but I, I can also show you the data has been done. If you want to see where the, the hot spots of suicide are, that's where the BT cotton is growing. So who are these jokers who are saying that it's not happening? I mean, uh, I've seen these, you know, these uh, videos of Indian guys saying, "Oh no, it's, it's nothing to see here. You know, no, there's nothing going on." Who are, who are these people? Well, that's, that's you know, like, I'll, I'll just say, kind of speed doctors trying to play it down, but um, it 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 is a massive problem in, in India at the moment. That, that is basically um, pretty well stopped. Um, BT cotton on the process of stopping it. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> um, they've basically, um, well, the, what, for a start, they've actually taken away Monsanto's right to have a patent over it, so like, Monsanto can't charge any royalties. Uh, but this year in particular, the crop failed so badly, it's, it's not even controlling the bollworm now. It's the cotton ball, and the, the, uh, the now um, farmers are going back to where they can get other varieties. The big problem is actually getting the non-GMO seed. Mm. <coughs> it, it, but it, there, there are a number of seed banks in India yeah. that are run by NGOs. In regard to your your question, there's a woman called Vedanta Shiva. Yeah. And so she is, she's led the coalition, or she assisted in the, this coalition that, and has all the data on, on suicides and Well, Vandana is actually a close friend of mine. And, you know, she stayed with us in, uh, in Australia. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, she, uh, I actually stay with her in India. And uh, now she's the one that's actually taken me to these things. I've met these people. And she's the one also who is now distributing the um, indigenous cotton variety. See, the Monsanto one is actually using, um, you know, American strains of cotton. Um, India has been growing cotton for thousands of years and they have their own indigenous strains. Now, those ones are largely resistant to pests and diseases. So, you know, I've been in Maharashtra state and other places and walked on these fields and seen, you know, wonderful crops. No damage, or virtually no damage to the balls. And then you see the nearby uh, BT fields and, you know, you, you, you can just see the damage, and so yeah. But, but you're right. Van Dana Sheep is the one who's actually led the charge. But now you've actually got um, all these different grow groups now, um, basically taking control and uh, trying now just to, to grow the Indian varieties. So do you actually I want to back up a little bit because you were talking about organophosphates and forgive me I can't recall if we ever talked about this on the podcast. Um, what do you know about the mad cow scare of was it early 90s late 80s yeah, somewhere in there okay. and because my understanding from um, I had gone to a conference where Mark Purdy who's yeah, now Mark, deceased yeah. yeah so and you know he he was the head of, I guess, the Cattlemen's Association there in, in the UK, and he, for, sorry, organic cattle, yeah. cattlemen's, and, you know, he, he and his fellow farmers, they refused to, to use the organophosphates to kill the warble fly, and then, um, at basically, their, all of all the, the herds that did not use the organophosphates were perfectly fine. Yeah. The other ones got the mad cow. Yeah, yeah. That and yeah. so, you know, the whole thing about cows eating yeah. cows is kind yeah. of out the window when you look at it that way. Yeah, although not accurate. Mark, Mark was no. part right with this. Okay. Yeah, no, Europe, but not one organic farm had mad cow disease. But what what actually happened was because of um, you know, prions mm -hmm. and you know, the feed at the time because you know, they were actually you know, say eating cow but other other animal meats as a protein source and this is cooked you know supposedly cooked at a temperature that, that, that would make it sterile but it wasn't enough to destroy prions gotcha. and so that was the other side of it is that that feed was also um, what really caused it so now um, but by not by essentially prohibiting animals to eat not just their own species, but, um, uh, you know, how can you say, mammals shouldn't be, you know, in this case... Uh, They're herbivores, yeah, yeah, exactly. Eating meat. Yeah, well, in this case, not, not eating other, you know, closely related uh, mammals. Um, that, that has stopped or, or, or significantly reduced uh, okay. cow disease. But it, it, how can you say, hasn't stopped it. Totally, every now and then there are still um, examples of it found. Mm -hmm. um, 
I have a friend whose dad died of a variation of mad cow where he'd eaten meat many years before and as an older man his health deteriorated and it was it took over his brain and killed him and my friend seemed like the doctors were sure it was like had to do with the mad cow style of disease have you heard of something yeah, like that? yeah 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 it was in humans it's um uh, yeah and it's the same thing. And the one in PNG as well. Yeah, well, yeah, that's from humans eating humans. Yeah. Like Sweeney Todd. Yeah. But the same thing. So, so these prions are uh, an interesting thing actually, because in, in some ways they act like they're alive. They they actually multiply, build copies of themselves. What they're doing when they get into the brain is actually grabbing killing neural cells and grabbing your DNA and building copies of themselves. So that's why the brain ends up with these holes in it and uh, why it's called mad cow disease. Um, but they're not actually alive. They're not a, but it's, where, where they're very interesting is actually shows you how life develops from organic molecules. That these organic molecules have the ability to replicate, which is one of the, one of the, um, how can you say, criteria for life. Right. But, uh, yeah, but what, you know, also to talk about in, in Mark Purdy's case, you know, what it also does look like, you know, and this is why a significant difference between the organic cow, cattle and, and, and the other cattle in, in the UK, is that the organophosphates do weaken the immune system. So, uh, you know, there is evidence that that has actually made the cows more susceptible to, gotcha. to the prions. Right. So, yeah. And then he also found a connection with manganese. He actually did a lot of work. And he um, went around the world and, you know, yeah. I know that uh, scrapey cases in um, the, the Midwest, yeah. he had he'd seen, he did some things in, I want to say, Prague and Japan as well, yeah. uh, where uh, this like hyper supplementation of, of manganese seemed to be at play in a lot of different species. Actually, he did a lot of work and actually found a range of um, Contributing factors. Contributing factors, yeah, which I think was very, is very useful because you know I think one of the things we have to be very careful of sometimes when we look at something like this and just make make, make the solution just too simple. Yeah, is uh, usually we find these things are, you know, can have a, a, a range of uh, contributing factors, and that's what Mark's work is. Um, yeah. On that big picture, you know, we know the human now is a microbiome. We know that there's more other cells than yeah. human cells, right? And we know that the more variety, yeah. the more we support the variety, the stronger and healthier we are. And now it's the same exact thing with our soil. Yeah. So that's what we're saying is we can't go killing off or blasting and radiating the whole soil and expecting to have healthy plants. And like you point out over and over, the organic farms, the multi-diverse farms, are showing bigger crops, are showing better crops. And so we're at that place of, well, what are we going to support? Corporation or multi-diversity of our biome? Yeah, and that's one of the things that I like that you said uh, last time I had interviewed you, where you talk about organic farming being the feel-good story of farming. Yeah. Um, and you touched on this before, because you're able to hire people and you know provide jobs for, in your case, your neighbors. Um, and to uh, really, you know, have, have
have uh, a more, more harmonious impact on the land. Look, look and, and we have good evidence of that, and, and you know, that in terms of the environmental impact, uh, you, you'll find the highest biodiversity on organic farms at every level, from the soil upwards. In fact, you know, the soil is actually the starting point of biodiversity you know, on our planet because. Uh, a teaspoon of good soil will have billions of species in it. You know, it's the most biodiverse part. And actually, in the soil, the most biodiverse part of it is actually around the, the root. There's a, a word for that now, the rhizosphere. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's where most of the biodiversity is. And that biodiversity is usually what protects plants. Um, you know, for, a lot of the nutrients, you know, like phosphorus, potassium, um, there'll be fungi that will be attached to, to the roots and they will exchange in, in return for getting glucose or sugars from the plants. Plants photosynthesis, they'll supply basic minerals. Um, we also know that most of this biodiversity actually protects plants from the pathogens, the invaders. And generally the rule is the more you have um, around the root, the less that you can be attacked. And the best way, I, the best analogy of that is if you want to think about, about a car park. And if you have that, that car park full of good guys and good girls, there's nowhere for bad people to park. The you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you start putting poisons in and killing them and opening up spaces, well now you're allowing, you know, the bad people to park there and, and in many cases, you know, this is the thing, when you talk about a teaspoon of good soil having billions of life forms, we know in some farms, and say some of the old sugarcane farms where I live, you go down to hundreds of species and most of those species or a high percentage of them are actually pathogens not the beneficials. Right. You've actually, um, by continuous use of poisoning, you, you actually um, kill most of the good ones um, and the other ones that survive tend to be the, uh, the, the, the pathogens. So we, we also know, and the work's been done now, that we, we can restore those soils. And, and quite quickly you can actually reverse the diseases. That's why I wanted to show you, you know, last night I showed the picture in Ethiopia. You know, we, we actually have a lot of evidence like that now just showing that the first thing to do with dealing with pests, diseases and weeds is to out the soil. And, you know, people say, oh, how does that work with weeds? Well, a whole lot of pests, you know, when, when people are first transitioning to organic, you know, we actually say to people, don't worry too much about it because three, four, five years down, it takes that long for, 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 for these systems to come back. But generally, especially by, by about year seven, suddenly most of these things just don't exist anymore. And the few that you've got left are really easy to manage you know, when, when you set up the right system. And sometimes it would be symbiotic relationships where it's actually beneficial. Exactly. And, and, and that's, 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 I didn't really have the time to show it last night, but that's exactly what, what you want to set up. The word we're using now is functional biodiversity, where 
rather than you know the standard model of industrial agriculture is that you, you only have the crop and anything else in there is a weed and is, you, know, you need to get rid of it whereas what we're looking now is actually um, you know planting you know other species with our crops and they are they do turn out to be symbiotic and we have such good data now showing um, how, how we get higher yields how, um, one of the things for instance they tend to be more resistant to um, drought these the, these systems they're also more resistant to um, damaging rains because you know it, if you've got your soil always covered you're, you're, you're stopping the range from eroding it, mm -hmm. and that particularly, you know, you know where I live, you say, here when we get them, our monsoonal downpours, and you know, they, 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 these are the nights when, you know, we can get four or five, six inches in a night, and that that can be very destructive rain. By having um, tall ground covers, they get the first of the heavy drops, and then. As it goes down to the soil, you, um, it, the other um, the other plants help slow it down. And if some soil is starts to dislodge and erode, yeah, the other plants work as silt traps. Like you see how it conserves the soil. So um, you know these plants you know, instead of people say, oh, they're reducing fertility. No, they're not. The, the other thing for me that's very important in a high rainfall area, you know, the rain, you know, if you've got bare soil, rain can leach nutrients, that's most of the, the fertilisers. But if we're growing a lot of plants, then they actually take up all that nutrient and store it in the plant. And then when the dry season comes or the cool season, and we usually cut them down as, as mulch and cover the soil, now I've got all those nutrients, you know, on top of the soil, protecting the soil. And so it's these sorts of systems, you know, where we use the word functional biodiversity, what we want now, you know, instead of paying for inputs, we actually bring in biodiversity that gives us our ecosystem services. So I wanted to show you the flowers last night, how we can do that to control pests. Uh, we can use compost, there's a whole range of things that we can use to control pathogens. You know. And you know, you know, these are other plants that we can actually use to control weeds. The we ones that we regard as we don't want, we actually replace them with the beneficial ones. It's the car park theory again. If you have bare soil, weeds love it. We, weeds generally are what we call pioneer species that come up. Um, if we can outcompete them, you know, for instance, one of my favourites for outcompeting is pinto peanut, you know, creeping peanut. You have it here. It, 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 and we'll actually mix in other species with it. Um, as a result, what in my farm, what were my originally my worst weeds? Now, are, are pretty well disappeared. I'm not, I'm not going to say I've eradicated them totally, but they are. And the word I use is managed. If I want to talk, talk Australia wide, where we're talking that the government spending hundreds of millions of dollars on herbicides, and 
not well, just way to eradicate it. Um, one thing that Rodeo did at one point was to look at Fukuoka, you know, what's our revolution? Where he, he has so many different plants and mulch mm. that he controls weeds just by this multi terrace mm. uh, tiering of plants. And uh, the same with the, the Chinese system. They, they have so many different ones growing all in the same place yeah. and they mature at a different time. The traditional, and you can still see those. But yeah, Fukuoka, One Straw Revolution is a book really worth reading it, 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 in terms of how he sets out the principles and how you can use that to, to very effectively manage weeds. Um, so the word which we're using now is management and, and, a, and a range of management that's what, strategies. That's what capitalists use. Sorry? That's what capitalists use. <laughs> <laughs> we're a capitalist country. Yeah. We're a fascist country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now we are. Yeah. But, and look, it depends Getting on your there. system. And you, probably, you know, I haven't really got the time tonight to, to data to actually go through these and explain how to do it. But generally, we can look at weeds and design you know, what we call the longer term solution to manage them, but the short term, you know, we, you know, for instance, um, we talk about acetic acid or vinegar. Um, vinegar is nine percent acetic acid, nine percent strength. There's good work done by the USDA that shows that that'll burn down everything, including the soil. Though then we have acidic soil, right? No, no. Actually, it's the thing with acetic acid. Um, it actually breaks down, it, it won't increase, this is actually interesting, it won't, won't, it's, it won't actually increase soil acidity, it just uh, decomposes in, in essentially hydrogen, oxygen and carbon. It, um, so it's, yeah, um, I know people say that, but we've actually looked at that and found that it, um, it just breaks that, it, it biodegrades rapidly, it's vinegar, you know, that we, we have. Um, the only thing with that, it, it, it's not a systemic herbicide, it's not a poison, so it, it requires further applications because what will happen is that um, most plants uh, will shoot again, but generally speaking, you let them shoot again um, and you actually try to get them, but where possible before, before they, they go green with chlorophyll, what we call the white stage. And then you can actually spray it with, with 3% or less, and that burns it down. And you have to do that um, enough times so that the weed uses its stored carbohydrate and grows up. It never gets a chance to, to photosynthesize and make more carbohydrates. And so um, you, you can kill all weeds um, on that level. The, the other issue are um, seed banks and some of these invasive species seeds, which, you know, we have, they're viable for 50 years, hard coats. And, you know, what we've found with those, you know, I know some people say we spray them with pre emergence, but you, you know, all pre emergence do is slow down the germinating, but it means if, if, if those seeds are viable for 50 years, you still have to spray pre-emergence for 50 years if that's your strategy. What's pre-emergence? Uh, they stop seeds from germinating. 
that's why they call it pre-emergent. In, in other words, um, you know, it stops, yeah. Basically, if you plow, as soon as you plow soil or open it up, that let light in seeds, seeds, that's a signal for seeds to germinate. So um, a pre-emergent is usually sprayed to, to actually prevent seeds from germinating. It doesn't kill seeds, that weed load is still there. If they start to germinate, they get poisoned. Um, best way to say it. But what, um, what we've found is the long-term strategy for most of these is um, actually introducing other covers to stop, stop them germinating. What, what causes, the main things that will cause seeds to germinate is when you disturb soil and uh, allow lighting. If that soil is covered with other plants and doesn't get disturbed, those weeds, uh, those seeds won't germinate and over time they just decompose and, and disappear. And we've had great success with that. You, another one area where we've had success with quite a lot of um, our invasive species, you know, things like, you know, um, sensitive weed, it's a, you know, the, a mimosa that you touch and, okay. and it'll come up in the lawns in the school, in, school, in uh, kids' playgrounds and you know, always out spraying, spraying with Roundup. That actually has a seed that lasts for 50 years, like a lot of mimosas do. And uh, we've just um, changed the pH. The, the two things that actually it's an indication of is acidic soils but also low nitrogen. And so by adding in a, 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 a friendlier legume like, like Pinto Peanut, well, there's a whole range of them, to put the nitrogen in, and then by actually just putting agricultural lime on it, it, it disappears in a season. But lime is, I mean, you have to apply and apply and apply and apply to have that have anything. I mean, we, I believe me, I did lime for years in Virginia to try to help the soil, and it's it's 10 and 15 years before that actually affects. With, with, with mimosa, we've done it in one, we, we, we do it in one season. I, I can show you, actually, I can show you in three months we, we, we can get rid of it by, by liming it. Yeah. You know, it's a is worth management. And in our systems where we look at how we bring in functional biodiversity to give us ecosystem services, you know, they start doing most of the work. You know, I, I get people saying, who's looking after your farm at the moment, okay? And it's looking after itself. <laughs> you know, when I'm home, I'm doing work. I'm, a, you know, I'm out in the tractor. But when I first had that farm, this particular one, 1991, um, I spent my life um, on the tractor. I spent my life getting irrigation working and, and so on. I had no time to go anywhere, holidays, nothing. I worked my butt off. But, you know, and that's when you start thinking, you gotta start thinking smarter and looking at how to redesign it. That's right. And that's what I've done. And, and so I now have, you know, the word I'll use for this is agroecology. Let's look at the science of ecology and apply it. And, you know, Actually, and I learned a lot actually from here in the States, you know, going to places like UC Davis and meeting. This is where I, I start to learn, learn about insectaries. A lot of that work is done. Um, Cornell, you know, Rodale Institute, you know, I, I learned so much 
coming to the States, but also to other countries. I'd actually go to the universities, you know, read the papers. I'd, I'd actually want to meet, meet these professors or these researchers. And Did I want you to read take... Pimentel? Sorry? Did you read Pimentel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. David Pimentel. I've got... yeah. I cite him a lot. Yeah. I actually cited him He's last night. Yeah. <laughs> and Professor David Pimentel from Cornell. And, um, and then, you know, I re redesigned my system. I, I, have a, I'm, I have a very productive farm. You know, I, I don't do it now because I'm away, but I used to export all around the world. I used to do a lot of exports to Japan. And what's your yield? I'm just curious. Sorry? What's your yield? I mean, how many, you know, uh, okay. let's do that. How many people are you feeding? Okay. You know what I mean? Let's no, okay. put, let's well, put in my industry, okay? Yeah. yeah, in your industry. Okay, That's let's talk about this. Uh, yeah. Half my farm, 15 acres are lychees. lychees. And, uh, okay. Uh, I, I was for a while the only organic grower in, in a group. Uh, we, we had over 60 growers along this Australian coast. 60. 2,000 miles. I was, the, I, was, I was the most northerly one in Australia, down to um, you know, Coffs Harbour, um, the most southerly one. And we, we, we marketed it together in the same box. I didn't put organic on mine, um, but we had to meet uh, quality control. And at one point, I was the president of this group. And, you know, so we. Because by the other way, we, we, we had strict quality control to, to get the quality. We, we used to have to, we had a three strikes and you're out with growers. If, if, if first, first time a grower couldn't meet the quality, then those of us, and I was a master grower, we'd go around and have a look at their system, help them do it. If, if the second time we find a, a non-compliance, because we ordered our material, you know, ordered the crops before they went off, you know, the, the boxes before they went off to markets, um, found a non-compliance, we'd go around and again, and this is us in our picking season when we're busy, but we'd give our time to help um, these other growers and look at their system again, make sure they've got it right. Third time, they're out because we know by then that they, these people aren't serious. So as president, I'd, I'd have to ask people to leave or sack them, you know, basically, you know, as, as the only organic grower, I had to meet the quality controls. But when I was president, I also had all the yield data from every grower. And to my surprise, I was in the top echelon of growers in terms of yield. And I know that with my other crops. And, and you, know, um, you know, yield is something that's seasonal and it's not, you know, <laughs> predictable. But, um, and particularly something like this, which tends to, you know, a lot of tropical fruits tend to be biannual. You have uh, on years and off years. Um, but, you know, I know for a fact that my yields were up there with the best and my quality was up there with the best of, 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 of my colleagues. So the answer is you can do it. But the big difference was my cost of production was significantly less than my That's colleagues nice. because now mm. you know by putting in these ecosystem services and getting them to do the work meant that my time um, now um, the amount of time I have to spend on the farm is significantly less instead of spending 
virtually every waking hour on it, but I'm spending more time away from it than, than in it. You know? And the place is still highly productive. Yeah. Say so here is this is one of the things I specialise in is you know teaching these farmers how to make their their businesses yeah. economic. So you know it's one thing farm you know, most farmers are good at growing, but most of them are really shit at selling yes. and making yes. money. Yes. And, and so, <laughs> and no, you're right. And there's there's, a, there's added value. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. if they, yes. they take the product and put added value on it, then yeah. they're going to yeah. see a big difference. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, I teach, you know, I, I, train, I teach farmers all around the world. And to me, one of the most important is selling, marketing. Yes. Because growing costs you money. The only time you make money is when you sell. And you've got to change that mindset. Right. Work from the market backwards and yeah. you know, start looking at the system. I, look, I did this with my farm. I, 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 so I'm one of the pioneers of bringing exotic tropical fruits in Australia. On my farm, I have more than 100 species of tropical fruits. And one time I looked at it and I realised there's five of them that made me good money. And the other ones, you know, you know, I sort of broke even on. I was doing the same amount of work. So I just then redesigned, um, you know, looked at where, where I made my money, for instance, with lychees. Um, when I came in early in the season, that's when I got my highest price. Mm. Later in the season, you know, the price dropped, but I was doing the same amount of work. So I regrafted my trees to have the early one. Mm. You know, you start looking at, and you know, the same thing, so I went down from you know, maybe sending off 30 different types of fruits to five. I made it seasonal. You know, at one point I was, you know, if you're doing papayas and bananas, you're picking and packing every day. And that meant, I, you know, oh, you never got a life actually. <laughs> and so um, so that, that, then, you know, in the end I said, you know, I want things that are seasonal so I'm not I'm only picking and packing for half the year. Nice. The other half I can maintain the farm or actually have a holiday. <laughs> and you know, but and I made more money. And you know, this is, I suppose this is the thing that you we we actually need to start. And this is not just organic farmers; it's all farmers. It's not unique. To, That's right. We've actually got to teach farmers that you know you're a business. You know, you might be a lifestyle and you love the lifestyle, you know, but you're a business and you have to look at it as a business and I tell you what, you turn it into a good business that makes you money, you'll love the lifestyle even more. And that that is that's what we have to do. And this a lot of you to come from. I think there's a, there's a lot of people in every industry that's like that. You know, artists are like that. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people Musicians. don't. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, like a lot of people will... Um, uh, you know, they want to do their craft, they want to get out in front of a big audience, they don't want to do what it takes to, to yeah. bridge that gap. Now what we will do is we'll, you know, when you're certifying that farm, is test the soil and test the produce. Because this, this is a really important issue. Now, um, if you have a look at the certification, there are at, you know, there are, say, certain, certain levels that um, you, you cannot go over. You can, right. Look, in this day and age, you cannot, you know, say zero um, because of the the nature of all these chemicals that are just basically. It. But 
you know, generally speaking, the, the levels are you know usually 100% lower than, than than the MRLs or what 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 is um, normally permitted. Uh, but the other thing, what we find, is that if people are using the right management techniques, um, that mo many of these chemicals will break down, and this includes PCBs. Mm -hmm. um, the um, organochlorines, and uh, we, we, we will actually see that they'll be microbially degraded. Now, things like heavy metals like arsenic, cadmium, um, um, lead, um, which you can find in soils. If you build up the soil organic matter, what happens is these, um, these chemicals actually absorbed or you know, attached to the organic matter, and the plants have this ability called ion exchange to extract what they need. So what, where the levels are what we call borderline, what we want to do, what we do now is test the produce. End of the day, what we're interested in is making sure that we don't have um, these levels in the produce. And more often than not, when we test the produce, it won't be there. If, you know, it's as simple as that. Um, no. So the certification process is quite rigorous when it comes to um, allowing a farm to, 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 to get the USDA. So the big trouble with GMOs because of the, the way that um, the pollen drifts. And I know also, yeah, talking with um, labs and stuff that do, do the work, you know, in some areas in the Midwest, it's, it's hard to find anything below, you know, say 15%. Um, tolerance and you know for instance the, the, the non-GMO project they 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 allow up to 5% tolerance because they actually believe that um, the people who put that together that if, if, if they had zero tolerance they'd actually have nothing yeah. so I, what I want to know because um, we're coming up on 10 o'clock <laughs> we were supposed to end at 9 but we started late um, what I want to know is what practical things like you talked about, you know, your pioneering work at the outset. You know how you got started, how you became an activist. You know the things that you've been able to achieve. You know, bringing in things that were forbidden mm. in your area. What do you think are some of the things that people can start to explore? To, to start making that shift, some you know farmers, consumers. Okay. What you know? What? Well, where do we? Where do we begin? Let's start with the soil. And you know, the, the, the two things that make the difference. One is you know, increasing soil organic matter. In other words, putting in you know, compost. I can't speak highly enough of, of using compost to to um, to to improve the health and also your yield. And it doesn't matter how big or how small your, your property is, you can do it. For instance, um, if I talk about some of the farms in the Midwest or in my country where we're talking about thousands of acres, um, they say, oh, we can't put compost on thousands of acres. Well, what they can do is when they're, they're seeding, is actually put the compost next to the seed. In other words, get the biology right next yeah. to it. And we, we, we had the data as little as 50 pounds an acre gives of compost will give a significant yield response and you keep on doing it year after year you, you improve the system the 
Um, the other one I think is very important is doing a complete cell test and, and, and balancing nutrients. In conventional industrial agriculture, they just look at nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK. But plants need um, between um, 22 to 32 different micronutrients. And what we like to do is actually do a complete cell test and look at uh, replacing all the nutrients. For instance, what, what you you would find here um, in, in the wetter parts of the island is that nearly all these soils will be deficient in boron. When, when you have high rainfall areas, boron leaches out, but um, just to explain the importance of boron, actually the other really important one is calcium. And the role, calcium has many roles in plants, but its main one, one of its main roles it's the word that uses the trucker of, of, of minerals. So all the other trace elements, uh, calcium is the one who actually trucks it into the cells, all the other nutrients. So if you don't have enough calcium, it doesn't matter how many of the other nutrients are in the soil, it can't be taken up to the plant and used. So we, we want to make sure that the calcium levels are good. But So is that a bone meal? Uh, bone meal or just, just uh, ground... Um, shells or oyster shells. Oyster shells, yeah. But, yeah, just, uh, you know, bone. ground coral, old coral, limestone. Um, bone too. Bones, exactly. Bone meal. Um, exactly. But generally, you know, we, we just use um, high calcium lime. That's cheap enough. But, you know, um, it, it, there's so many sources of calcium. And, and that's one of the things we teach people. You know, these things, there's so many sources that, that you, you can actually find ways to get it very, very cheaply. But the thing is with calcium, it, it needs boron for, for, uh, in the soil for, for calcium to go into the plant. So in the end, you might have enough calcium, you might have enough other minerals, but if you don't have enough boron, you can't get the calcium to work. And the amount of boron you need is just... Um, parts per million. You're really talking about a few spoonfuls per acre. Wow. It's so but distributed. How do you do it? Uh, normally, what I do is mix it up in water and just spray it out yeah. lightly. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's that, that's, and just do it evenly, you know. And, and the thing is, if you put, start putting too much boron on, actually, you want to talk about a really good herbicide, you want to get rid of pipeed grass or anything, um, spray it with. Borax. Oh, serious? I'm serious. What kind of dilution? Um, you won't need much. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge fight. It's Your kikuya is so strong. No, no, it's, it's incredibly strong. I'll bring my goats by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> goats, yeah. goats but, eat. Um, look. Uh, just about. You, you should just try it one day. Just, just get some borax at the chemist. Um, say. Mix it up at say, um, you know, what have to say, yeah, uh, just, uh, you know. Or just make a water spray again. Yeah, just, make yeah. a water spray. Well, I'm just trying to think of, you know, just say if you had a, um, that this much in a pint, you dissolve it in, this much borax in a, in a pint of water, and then 
just spray it out, you know, where, on the edge of your, you know, your garden or you know the fence line, wherever you don't want the want it to go, and and, and that carcue will start to die. When I lived in Florida, every once in a while, when we'd end up with uh, fleas in the house on the carpet, so we had dogs. You'd, spray, you'd sprinkle borax all over yeah. the carpets and then they'd yeah. leave for three the days. boric acid for the ant and roaches. I was going to say for roaches, yeah. 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 Is bor borax and boric acid the same thing? Borax is this, the laundry the detergent. Laundry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. No, no, borax. But okay. you put look, boric look, acid. Yeah, but where do you get boric acid? Borax, sodium, borax, you know, this comes in all different forms. Essentially, we're talking about boron. So, you know, it's also, like I said, it's, it's really good for bugs. It, it's actually, a, you know, I want to talk about getting rid of ants, for instance, like fire ants or whatever. So we got to um, talk about that. Um, or termites or whatever. Yeah. Um, bed bugs? Or cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, and I'm such bed bugs. Bird they they live on, they, oh, yeah. they live on us. Um, but, um, you know, just, we, we just mix it. I just get, say, yes, borax or, so, or sodium borate and just and sugar half and half yeah. and then um, just you want to make the, making the coffee in the morning boil up some water just, just put a bit on it and just mix it together and just make it like a paste yeah and you know just put that where okay. um, you know the ants are or, or the cockroaches uh, they'll, they'll come out they'll find it yeah because they're like sugar yeah and <laughs> What, 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 you know, when you're talking about getting rid of um, something like a, a termite's nest or, or something like a fire ant's nest, where borax is good, it's a slow poison. So the worker ants, the worker termites, get it, they bring it back to the hive and it, they all feed on it, including the queen. The termites too, okay, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm and chasing them uh, with orange oil right yeah, now. And then one day they all wake up dead. My, I don't wake up. And on that note, <laughs> the Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Music